we have a great subscription offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our digital edition for 12 months for just $24.99. That's six issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your inbox for less than $4.20 an issue. Only $24.99 for a full year. So don't wait. To subscribe, go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. My guest today on Talking Australia is Sophie Matteson. Right now, Sophie is about halfway through an epic trek from the west to the east coast of Australia, and she's doing it all on foot, accompanied only by her brace of camels. It's an extraordinary adventure, but it all began just as the rest of us were closing down as COVID was starting to change our lives. Sophie found herself setting off on this incredible journey. Today, I'm talking to Sophie as she is about to set off on the second part of this adventure. Hello, Sophie. Hi, Chrissy. So you, tell us where you are right at the moment. Describe it for us. Yeah, so um, I'm on Beltana Station in the northern Flinders Ranges, uh, which is a lovely old historic station, actually. And it's it's kind of the birthplace of camels in Australia almost. So I think I think it was about the the third importation uh, of camels arrived at uh, Beltana Station and um, it was actually set up as a breeding ground for um, for camels out here. Uh, so it's yeah it's quite um quite significant I guess in the camel world and um, kind of quite an honor to be here with my camels really. And tell us about so um, take us right back to how did somebody like yourself end up doing this a trek across Australia with camels it's not something that we all think of doing and obviously we we tend to think of Robin Davidson's tracks because a it's it's a a very well-known story but also we had the movie that came out a couple of years ago so I guess when people think about walking Australia across Australia with camels they think of that but it's a very different um uh expedition that you've undertaken you're actually planning to cross the entire continent uh, from east to west so just take us back to you know, where the idea came from, what it is about camels. Did you have any experience of camels before you started and why they would make such great companions on a trip like that? Well, I it was about uh, four years ago now uh, that I got into camels and I was actually working in a lot of film and TV before that. Um, and uh, I, I was just only at the, at the beginning going to take a, a short break and uh, do sort of something different for six months. And uh, I stumbled across people milking camels. And I thought, oh, what a great job. Like, it's so strange, so bizarre. <laughs> and uh, But uh, why not, you know, do something outdoors? And uh, I always said I had a bit of a passion for farming. So I got into that and just... It just uh, started, I guess, this, yeah, this love affair with the camel. Um, I just realised what amazing animals they are, incredibly intelligent, and um, and how many different uses there are for them, I guess, throughout Australia. So, you know, people milk camels. There's camels that are um, can be used for trekking. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I just found them really fascinating animals. So I guess for me my trip kind of evolved from that love of the camel. Um, 
it was sort of then that I, I just, I wanted to learn everything I could about them. Uh, so I went from the dairy to um, the Flinders Ranges, actually where I am now, and uh, and I started learning about uh, camels with a company here, Camel Treks Australia, uh, learning about how to walk with camels through the bush and how to camp out with them. And then I headed on up to Uluru and I learned more about camels up there and um and yeah, and so it was sort of, sort of along. It was sort of then that I started. Yeah, I found this this passion for for walking in the bush with camels, and I thought, wouldn't it be great to do a trek of my own? Um, I, I'm not even quite sure how the idea came to walk across Australia, but uh, <laughs> it's sort of, you know, one of those things where at some point you sort of think, oh, wouldn't it be cool to do something? And then that uh, that seed has been planted. And then from then on it was, uh, yeah, it became, it became this goal. Um, and also I guess a way to sort of to challenge myself personally. But, um, but really probably the main passion for me was it was um was to get camels of my own from the wild and to train them for this trek that was that was really my goal and how would you I mean with something like that if you're going to take a camel from the wild what's I mean you've been out there you obviously know your way around the Flinders and you've you've been around Uluru I mean most of us don't really go to these kind of places are there just wild camels running around in herds or, you know, take us through the process of how you would go about acquiring yeah. animals for something like yeah. that. Yeah, so I guess, well, I guess that was one of the things that fascinated me when, you know, when I discovered this love of camels is that we have this huge population of wild camels in Australia and um, they're not native to Australia but they were brought over in the um, late 1800s um, and they were used for basically exploration of the outback and, um they were used to cart huge wool bales um, out for export during the wool boom days and um, and then also, you know, to supply all of the stations out here with any equipment they needed. So the camel trains would move through areas that, that vehicles were not able to. And then uh, when trains and, well, when, you know, uh, cars and trucks started to come in, the camels became obsolete. So their mm. their owners, rather than see them, see them shot which was what the sort of what the government at the time proposed to do um they actually released them into the wild and uh from there you know we had no clue but uh camels just absolutely thrive in australia so this these uh these camels that were released they just bred up and um and now we have actually the the only population of um of wild one hump camels in the world well i guess i guess technically they're not wild but you know they're a they're a they're a feral, feral population that has gone you know that is uh, that is running wild so so yeah, that interested me. You know, I thought, wow, it's this huge resource, huge resource that we have out there in Australia. Yeah. And um, yeah, so so for me, I was at at the time I was at Uluru, and um, I the company uh, I was working for there, Uluru Camel Tours, they took most of their trekking camels from the wild, and uh, so I went out to a station called Mulga Park Station. 
which is just on the NT South Australian border. And I went out there with my boss at the time and um, we went wild camel mustering and we brought in we brought in about 90 camels from, wow. from the Western Desert region. Goodness. Um, yeah, so so these these camels, I mean, although we collected them from a station, they are, yeah, they're coming in basically from the wilds of the of the deserts out and there. How, how do you muster camels? Is it the same as mustering cattle? Is it with a truck or a helicopter or dogs or yeah, how does that work? Yes, kind of similar. Um, so, so mainly it's with uh, vehicles, those little... Uh, uh, buggies that you see um, with the crazy suspension that rip through the bush. Mm. Um, so they're little sort of four by fours, I guess. And um, yeah, so we went out with those in vehicles and motorbikes and um, and you basically sort of spot the camels and then you start to usher them towards a set of yards and then uh, um, as you get closer to the yards, you have to jump off the off the dirt bikes because you start to be in a, in a bit of a vulnerable position on those mm. and uh, jump in the cars and you and you push the camels into into those yards. But it's uh, yeah, it's quite a adrenaline pumping really sometimes. Sounds like, sounds uh, like the Wild West. Yeah. And, and tell me, are they the camels that you would take from the wild? Would these still be always be female camels? Were they, is that who's in the herd? No, no. So we actually, the day that I went mustering for for my lot, we came across multiple different herds, and then so the makeup's a little bit different with with each of them. So, so we came across a couple of mobs that was uh, a dominant bull, and then all his his females, mm-hmm. um, including some youngsters in there as well. Um, and then uh, we also came across what what I like to call a bachelor a bachelor herd, which will be young male camels um, that have been that have sort of got to the age where they're in sexual maturity and they've been kicked out of the herd by that dominant bull. Uh, and then they they roam around as solitary bulls, but often those younger bulls they'll, they'll find one another and they'll sort of develop this little bachelor bachelor right. pad. Uh, right. Yeah, so a couple of boys out on the town looking for trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so I think we brought in a little mob of about nine of those, and and yeah, we just we sort of started to to join them up in the buggies, and and then we had a, a big a big herd um, that we were pushing into uh, pushing into the yards. And do you drive them then once you've rounded them up in the outback area like that into those yards, how do you mm-hmm. move them then? Yeah, so what we always like to do is is leave them a day or two as well to settle down in, in the yards there. Um, I mean, the properties out here are so huge that, that we they've been running for several kilometres. So, so you know, there's there's a lot of lactic acid build up in them and they've had, you know, a, you know, a slightly stressful experience probably. So we let them sort of relax in the yards and have some hay there. Uh, and then they they got on board a truck and, um, and yeah, the five that I had chosen, they, they came to Uluru and so I trucked them to Uluru and it, mm-hmm. was, it was from there that I, that I started training them. And why, how did you select them? What, what, what were you looking for? <laughs> well, actually, I, I got a bit of help from, uh, from my boss at the time because, to me, I looked out on those 90, 90 camels and I was just like, oh, they're all beautiful. They are, <laughs> I take all of them. <laughs> but, um, but he really knew what he was doing, so I, so I relied on that knowledge of, you know, of, uh, other, of uh, more experienced camel people than myself. And I guess probably the main thing that he's, he was looking for was um, 
confirmation. So, uh, you know, you, you want a camel that's sort of a nice shape, a nice size. And also the other biggest thing is, is age. So my, I've got four boys and one girl. Um, my boys are kind of, they're kind of sort of late teens, I guess. So it's, mm. it's not a bad age to get them because they're, um, they're almost fully grown. They've maybe got a, a couple of years more of, of growing to do. Um, and, but, but also, you know, you've got a, a long working life left in them, mm-hmm. um, you know, and they're fit and healthy at, at that how, age. How so. long do they live, Sophie? What's their lifespan usually? Well, they can actually live up to, there's reports of camels living up to 50 years old. So so it's a long, long lifespan for them. So actually mine, Mm -hmm. when I got them, they were probably around the six, seven-year-old mark. Mm -hmm. So so it's pretty pretty scary to think that I'll have these camels probably for for most of my life, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you so you've got your camels and then you had to name them. So tell us what you named them and yes. how you come up with your name. <laughs> so I've got uh Jude, Delilah, Charlie, Clayton, and Mac. And um I always <laughs> I always wanted camels that I could sing to. So a couple of them, a couple of them are song names. So Jude yeah. and Delilah are song names, so I can uh, <laughs> belt out a tune to them when I'm on the road. <laughs> and um and uh, Clayton comes from uh, Clayton Station, which is up the Birdsville track, and that's actually one of the first places I, I learned to trek with camels. So, so I named him after that. Um, Macaulay is named after, or Mac is named after Macaulay's Lane, which is where my my dad's property is in Queensland. Um, and uh, Charlie, Charlie is named after a little camel. He's actually one of the first camels that I ever met uh, at Q Camel Dairy on the Sunshine Coast. Um, and I just absolutely fell in love with that little camel. So, so I named my Charlie after after that Charlie. And did you straight away, I mean, were you able to tell the difference? It seems like a daft question because you must know them so well by now that you spend all this time with them. But, I mean, they would probably all look the same to me. But so did you immediately know the difference, tell the difference between, between all of them? Yes, I think it's something that I've got better at, at as the years have gone by. I remember when I first started working with camels and and just seeing, yeah, just seeing a big herd of of um of 80 camels and being like, oh my goodness, they all look exactly the same. How do you tell them apart? And it's just kind of like the longer you work with them, I guess like any animal, you just start to see the sort of subtle differences. So, you know, they all have different, you know, to me now I look at them and they have they look totally different. Yeah. Um, they have different shaped faces. They have different shaped humps, different colorings. Um, you know, all of mine are sort of, I guess, slightly a different color. Even the, even the, um, uh, their coat is a little bit different. Some have straight hair, some have curly hair. Um, and I guess that's humans really. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess probably in Australia we have, you know, it would almost be like having, uh, thoroughbred horses compared to Arabian horses compared to, but it's Mm -hmm. just that no research has ever really been, been done on the, on the camels that we have in Australia. Mm -hmm. Uh, In places like India, they have, you know, registered camel breeds, but, um, here we kind of we might we might even have our own blue healer, so uh, we just don't know. <laughs> right? Okay, that's interesting, isn't it? We mm. just don't really think about there being mm. different species. We just that's think right. whether they've got one or two humps. That's as yes. far as it goes. <laughs> Very scientific, really. <laughs> so, if you tell me when it comes to training the camels, what is it that you're training them to do, and what's the how do you achieve that with 
um, a, a group of what are really wild animals. Mm. Yeah, so I, I, I probably gave myself about, it was about a year that I was, uh, or just over, just over a year that I was training my five. And um, I guess one of the first things is, is starting to develop a, a bit of trust between, between you and the animals. Um, you know, even though they're such large animals, camels, they're big scaredy cats, really. Um, they, you know, they're still a prey animal. And so for them, you're this, this, um, this scary predator. Um, so it took a long time for mine to, to really sort of accept that I was, you know, a leader in the herd or, you know, one of them rather than someone that's out to get them. So, so I actually spent, you know, probably about almost the first month or, or maybe more just actually picking yummy camel food and wheeling wheelbarrows of yummy <laughs> camel food into their into their yards and just trying to get them trying to get them to like me really yeah so food and, food's always um, very important in the training uh, I suppose. food is always yeah yeah just like with yes your, with i mean you can dog. to a certain yeah. extent yeah but then but then sort of, i guess after that i like to i like to not use treats too much really because it's it, it, it they can become a bit like the treats are the only thing you know and the, and the, the brain switches off they can become a bit treat obsessed so so after that you can kind of use um you can play some some sort of psychological games with them I guess um when you're tying when you're tying a you, it's a lot of repetition. So, so after after that point, I would start. I put halters on my camels and I would tie them to a rail, and and it was just getting them used to to I guess being, you know, having yeah, having something on their face and being restrained, and um, and they're just so amazingly smart camels. Um, you know, at first they might they might fight that pressure of the rope, but they they give in very easily and they they learn very easily that it's not the end of the world and um and then you teach a camel to to hush so to that means to sit down basically because camels are so tall you have to you have to load all of the equipment and put a saddle on them from a seated position otherwise that I just can't reach um so so you can do that by putting a rope around their front leg and then up and over the hump and you kind of leverage that that front leg so that it drops to the ground and all the time you say you say the word hush and they can learn that that's really actually it, it seems like a big ordeal but it's actually really only probably half a morning's work they pick it up so incredibly fast and once they've learned that word you can pop them out into a paddock for years and they will still remember that word they have incredible memories um and yeah and and all the time I reward my camels by actually almost sort of doing the the opposite to what people think everyone wants to get in there and love them and cuddle them and everything but but like I said you're still a you're still a predator to them so so for me I kind of reward them by actually going okay you've done what I've I've asked you to do now I'm going to get out of your personal space mm. because because for them it's um you know yeah it's still it's still it's incredibly like intimidating when there's someone exactly. around when you're around them yeah exactly okay. so I go the reward is you know what okay you've done what I want now you get your space and um, and you can chill out without me being around. And mm -hmm. um, and you often find when you sort of stand back and you sort of give them their space, they then want to come into your space more 
rather than mm. you sort of trying to push all this this love and affection onto them too soon. Mm. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, that's very, yeah, what, a, what an interesting insight into kind of how their minds work. And, <laughs> and tell me about, so did their personality start to come through? quite quickly absolutely yes yeah and that's another thing with training is is you when you start to sort of see their personalities you can kind of train them according to their personalities you know so something that might work for one camel just really doesn't work for another camel and vice versa um you know and I had a little camel Clayton you know talking about that that affection side and, and he would just uh scream every time I went near him so camels do this crazy roar and, and what they do when they're really terrified is they actually will throw their their cud up onto you so like the contents of their stomach that's where camels get the reputation for spitting it's actually right. not saliva it's 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 cud and um and Clayton was just so terrified so terrified from the beginning that you know you only had to go sort of three meters away from him and he would just be an absolute you know screaming like a wild monster and um <laughs> And now he's 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 starting to turn into a really sweet camel, but but I just learnt with him very quickly to to stand back. And um, he's a very hard worker, but um, he's probably never going to be a real cuddly cuddly camel. Mm. Um, he he likes to do the job. He likes to know what's expected of him, but um, but he doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't want to be. He doesn't want to be your friend unless he sort of comes into your space. Whereas I have another camel, Charlie, who is just loves to be patted loves kids loves laying his head in your lap um you know so yeah they're, they're all very very different we have a special offer for all our listeners subscribe to our ag magazine for six months for just 39.99 and save 10 percent on the newsstand price that's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just 39.99 You'll find our special subscription offer at australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. So there you are and you've, you've been training them for probably, was it about a year, did you say you were training them? Yes, for? yeah. Yeah. And then, then you've got the logistics, so you've got the camels, but you've also got the logistics of this traverse of the Australian continent. You're going to be walking through all kinds of different terrains, also different kinds of properties, some private property, some public property, maybe sometimes along the road. Tell us about the planning of uh, such a long remote area walk planning was huge it was it was really like a, yeah a, a year's worth of camel training and a year's worth of, of planning as well so um I get uh, also also accumulating all the equipment that was massive um so all of my saddlery um had to be made or acquired um you know there's so many bits and pieces of safety equipment that you need and camping equipment that you need and um uh, and then after that, I guess I started to to look at look at the maps and uh, think about which route I wanted to go. And um, probably the biggest thing when I sort of came to that point that stood out for me was there was this huge road that went west to to east, and it was called the the Anne Bedell Highway, and it traversed the Great Victoria Desert. And I thought, well, that seems like a very obvious choice of mm. of roads to take. Um, so I, so I base a lot of my trip around, around sort of that road. 
um, which when I say when I say it's called a highway, which is it's kind of ironic. It's it's a bit uh, it's, a, it's a very rough rough uh, desert track, really. Um, yes, this is the, of course it's Anne Bedell. Because, uh, it's named after Len Bedell's wife, uh, Len Bedell being the um, the the surveyor I, yes. that uh, went out with his um, grading vehicles and graded a lot of these desert tracks way back in the the 1960s. Len's a, a, mm. an Australian legend. Mm, absolutely, um, so, yeah, yeah. Those that yeah, highway does seem like a little bit of a stretch. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's it's incredible the roads that, that Len built back then. Um, yeah, so I, I I sort of got my my route planned out, and then I started contacting. I basically contacted every single station along the road just to. Um, uh, to let them know I was coming and, and station owners were incredibly helpful in that way that, um, you know, they, they could tell me information about what was the best track to take and, you know, where there was good feed, what water points were turned on. And, um, mm. so it was definitely helpful having that, that local, local knowledge. Um, yeah. And also, and permits as well to go across Aboriginal land and working, you know, distances out distances between water points and you know if I was going to need any help with delivering water so so yeah there was a there was a lot of lot of logistics there yeah and so you found yourself finally ready to um to start just as well coming off the back of a a, a catastrophic bushfire season <laughs> in Australia yes. and then turning into a global pandemic so were there moments where you thought that you might not be able to go ahead yeah, I was very lucky timing-wise, actually, because um, because we we I arrived with the camels. Um, we tr- I trudged the camels from Uluru across to the coast of WA about only about a week before all of the borders started closing for the pandemic. So if I had been any later, I wouldn't have even been able to begin my trip. I wouldn't have even made it into WA. So so in some ways the, the timings couldn't be more perfect. And then, you know, luckily I was starting from one of the, the, the biggest state in Australia, so it was going to be months before I was crossing any more borders. So, uh, you know, I remember at the time it was sort of, it was very uncertain what was going on and a lot of permits were revoked. Um, and I wasn't going through any Aboriginal land to begin with. And I thought I was just going through station country and I thought I'll just start and I'll just hope that, you know, hope that things evolve or things improve as I go. And, um, yeah, it actually ended up, ended up working very, very much in our favour because, we uh, just barely saw any people on the road. We had the roads all to ourselves, which which was great. So COVID nineteen came in as of from nowhere, something that really changed everybody's lives. Um, but it didn't stop you going ahead with the expedition, and in fact, it wasn't all bad news for your expedition. So tell us about how that affected your plans. Um, yes, well, so we I trucked the camels from Uluru to uh, Western Australia about a week before uh, all of the borders basically started shutting. So, so it was very lucky timing. If if it had been a week later, I wouldn't have even been able to start the trip. So, so yeah, so very lucky. And then. Um, it was sort of a bit uncertain as to how it was going to go, uh, but in the end, it, it actually ended up working out really in our advantage because, um, especially along the Amberdell Highway, uh, 
no one else was actually able to get permits except myself. So because of the way that we were travelling and we were we were going to be coming into Aboriginal land at such a slow pace, we basically would have um, been doing our own form of social distancing. So, <laughs> so they were happy for me to still come through. And I remember at first I was kind of, I was really nervous about, about hitting that remote track knowing that there'd be no one out there. Um, and in the end, that was actually the most special experience because even though deserts, you know, are remote in Australia, there's still a, a huge number of people that that do explore the interior of Australia. And, you know, in any normal year, I would have had, you know, a couple of cars every second day, third day or so maybe coming past. Mm. Um, but this year there was no one. No one had travelled that road from March and I was coming through in September. So I really got to have that that special uh, solitude um, solitude in the desert, which was, yeah, which was amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it wasn't all bad. I guess that in an, that might have also been a disadvantage in some ways because I guess that you would have known that there were going to be people coming through fairly regularly if anything went wrong for you. Um, and so I guess in some ways that, that also must have changed your planning a little bit, knowing that it probably wasn't going to be anyone who was going to be able to bail you out or bring you water or, you know, take a message somewhere for you. Yes. So how did you deal with that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because I sort of thought, I always thought, oh, you know, if I really get into trouble, if I'm, you know, if I've forgotten something or, you know, if I'm running really low on water, there's there's always, you know, people willing to help you in the outback and there's always people driving past, you know, with four-wheel drives that are, are kitted up to the roof and they always have excess stuff. So, so yeah, so it, it, it did make me nervous at first. Um, but I had a huge amount of help from um, the Indigenous community out there, Oak Valley, which is just on the on the South Australian side of that track, and um, they were amazing because I looked at um, I looked at those water points, and once there's water tanks across most of the Western Australia section. Um, and they've been put out on the road just so that, you know, if anyone has an emergency, there is water there. But on the South Australian side, there's really no infrastructure. Um, so I started to look at those distances and go, oh, my gosh, I'm actually really going to need help out here. And um, I had contacted Oak Valley anyway to get permission to walk across, and that's when they then put me onto their ranger team, and the ranger team said, yeah, no worries, we're going to, you know, we're happy to come out and do a water drop for you and your camels, and we'd love to bring the whole community out too. So so it sort of started this relationship with with me and, and, and Oak Valley that was, yeah, one of the highlights of the trip really so far. They, every time I sort of, you know, had moments where I was feeling down or feeling lonely or remote out in the desert, they would they would pop by and uh, rather than just do the one water drop, they actually ended up doing four water drops for me and um, and also then contacting the Cooper Rangers as well on the other side and and getting them to help me out too. So they were they were such a help. And, um, and yeah, and, and they were just able, able to come and camp out with me and, you know, share a little bit about Anangu culture and, um, and speak language. And and it was just very, very special. And did you have to, did you have like a satellite phone or how did you stay in touch or was it just all planned in advance? 
Yeah, most of it was most of it was planned in advance, but the satellite phone is great actually. Um, the satellite, I normally always call people in advance and sort of give them a rough idea of when I'm coming through, and then I'll sort of do a follow up call with the satellite phone when I, you know, know exactly what what day I'll be I'll be travelling by. Mm. Um, and it's also also been just just so good to be able to keep connected with with friends and family. You know, just even to send a text to say that that I'm okay and you mm. know. Um, yeah, it's uh, sometimes it's kind of in some ways like I always think it's a little bit of a blessing and a curse. Mm. Uh, like anything, <laughs> you can kind of almost develop a bit of an addiction for it, you know, as if, like we're addicted to, to social media and screens, you know, when we're back in reception. Even when you're out of it reception, I found like you can almost become a, di- a bit addicted to the sat phone, you mm. know, and I found myself constantly sort of turning it on to sort of be like, is there anyone, you know, is anyone, is anyone me? calling me? And uh, yeah, <laughs> they forgotten yeah, about you, me. You no, of, very yeah, understandable. That's right. You can kind yeah. of, you know, lean on it as a bit of a as a bit of a crutch, really. I, I have this this one memory of of standing up on a sand dune, and it was and it was I was in it was before I'd actually connected with Oak Valley, and I was almost right in sort of the South Australia side of of, of Western Australia, right in the centre of the desert there. And I remember just feeling so incredibly isolated and remote. And I think I'd called home to sort of have a chat with with um, with someone back home and then I I hung up and and I remember just like clinging onto the sat phone with the aerial up just mm-hmm. just not knowing that I had to turn it off to preserve battery but not wanting to turn it off because it, I felt that that would you know all of a sudden disconnect me with that outside world and it was just it was yeah really just felt incredibly scary and and heartbreaking to switch well, off I guess from, that, that's from everyone. Really, um, a big part of uh, what you, must have been in your mind when you were sort of planning it is that you knew that you were going to be doing this uh, on your own, only in, in terms of not being in human company. Uh, you were obviously going to have your animals, mm. and and the, and the important thing to point out is you don't ride the camels, do you, Sophie? They are just purely pack animals to carry your. Uh, gear and yes. for you to sort of be yeah. with for your company yeah mm, mm, absolutely yeah yeah so I mean I, I do have a I have a riding saddle on my lead camel Jude um so I guess I I wanted to have the option out there if you know if I was to injure myself or or something yeah. like that that I I could get on and ride but um, to be honest, for me, like I, I, you know, I enjoy walking. You don't want to be in the saddle for sort of six hours. It's you know, you end up getting sore that way. So, and then mm. it becomes a bit of a an ordeal. You know, yeah, sitting them up and down to get on and off, and you know, you've got to sort of rearrange pack gear and stuff. That, but I actually just find the whole thing easier walking. Mm. Um, and I'm yeah quite quite happy on the ground and and it's and a little bit of a safety thing too you know you have a lot more control on the ground um especially in those desert stretches you know where I ha- I had wild camel encounters um the last thing you want to be doing is is having to get out a rifle in a in a hurry from you know from a seated position on top of a camel you know it would be it would be too, yeah. just too slow so yeah. uh so, so, yeah, so, so it's, it's, you, it's the idea the is ground. that you're walking you're walking with camels. You're not walk, You're not crossing Australia on camels. You're crossing Australia with camels, which yeah, is quite walking a, a, with camels. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, so you've you've set off. I mean, you you start off at beautiful Shark Bay, 
on the west coast of, uh, of WA. Uh, and your camels probably saw the, the ocean for the first time. How did they respond? Mm, yeah, I remember actually we, we arrived on the truck. We sort of hit uh, Geraldton and it was just <laughs> this, so happy to all of a sudden see the ocean and, and the little heads were popping out of the truck sort of looking around a bit wide-eyed and, uh, and then we headed on up the coast to, to, to Shark Bay and then there was the first day that I actually walked them out uh, onto the beach and... Um, and the funny thing was, is I thought, oh my gosh, they're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna think, what the hell is this huge, you know, blue expanse? And instead, all that they were worried about was spooking at a little tiny shed that was on the beach. They thought that that was right. way more scary than the huge expanse of ocean, which was <laughs> kind of funny. But no, but I remember actually taking, I took Jude right down, and you know, the rest of the camels behind him, I took him right down to the to the waterfront. And um, and bless him, he got he got right in there and he poured around at the water and then he you know tried to drink a little bit of it and then of course realised how salty it was and flicked his head around and spat salt water everywhere and uh, so yeah so that was that was his first experience of of the ocean. We have a special offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just thirty nine ninety nine and save ten percent on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $39.99. You'll find our special subscription offer at australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. So then you started walking as we've, we've talked about your following the Anne Bidel Highway, um, this outback trek. What, what kind of pace were you making? I mean, how far would you get in any given day? Um, I would probably, probably, we, we did build it up. So at the beginning, we were, we, when we first set off from Shark Bay, we were actually only doing 10K days. And that's just because it was, it was new for us all. It was new for the camels. It was new for me. Um, you know, they were still sort of getting used to the routine of things. And then we sort of slowly stepped it up to 15K. And then probably by the end, we were doing a, on average 18 to 20K a day. Which, um, which seems like nothing really compared to, you know, if you're bike riding or walking or anything, you can actually, you know, smash out quite a few more Ks. But um, for me, a, a lot of the day revolves around camel care. So they have, to, they have to eat. I have to feed my animals during the day too. So and because they're big animals, you know, they require certain number of hours grazing so I try and graze them for for about four hours so four hours of, of daylight is is spent um with them with them eating so that sort of really restricts the amount of time that you can actually be on the road walking with them and we're also not the fastest of vehicles <laughs> we only walk at about uh three four k an hour sometimes so it's, so it's quite an amble <laughs> yes. And so everything probably on something like this does revolve around the availability of feed for the camels. So how had you sort of planned in advance for that? And what were the challenges that you faced, especially coming into those arid desert zones where, you know, you don't really see an awful lot of vegetation on the mm. ground? Yeah, it was, um, that was, I would actually say probably the hardest part of the trip for me was, was feeding the camels. Um, um, I mean, camels, they can eat a huge variety of, of stuff out there. 
and um, and Western Australia actually, you know, they're they're best when they're in those arid regions, and there's a lot of there's a lot of food that they can eat. But the problems we faced was that most of Western Australia had was in the grip of a pretty bad drought. Um, it was very, very dry. So there was a lot of the station country we passed through as well. You know, even people had cattle that were struggling too. And, um, yeah, so it was, it was just feeding them off very little and, and incredibly dry stuff. So, so not the best. And I started to really see their weight deteriorate. Um, and then when we got out into the desert, um, in some ways, in some ways you have a bit of an advantage because then you're moving off stock country. And so you're, when you're heading out into the desert, the, the only other thing that's out there large animal wise is, is camels. Um, so there was almost more feed in some of the desert stretches, but then the next problem we faced is that, uh, there'd been a huge wildfire in the Western half of the great Victoria desert. So there was patches Patches that where there was actually a little bit of new growth coming through that the camels were loving, but then patches that were very desolate. Um, I mean, we're talking sort of fairly bare sand dunes as far as the eye can see, and which is unusual for Australian deserts, especially the Great Victoria Desert, because we have a lot of vegetation in our deserts in Australia, and, and that's why our camels thrive out there. But um, yeah, there was there was really some spots, and definitely some spots in the desert where I'd noticed I'd I'd seen wild camel tracks, and I noticed they were actually it was almost like they were using the Amberdale Highway as a camel highway. They had sort of gone on nope there's no feed here we're just going to carry on walking up the road and just keep walking until we find better feed um and so yeah so I really struggled with my camels in a in a shocking season really um and not only that was an issue but because the feed was so dry out there they weren't getting a lot of moisture from their feed so they uh, camels can absorb so much moisture from from what they're eating and so I was relying on that for them to be able to go fairly long distances without water and but they got thirsty they got very very thirsty because they weren't getting that water mm-hmm. um yeah and that's when it, I started to really panic um that I had underestimated actually how long that they could go for and the, and the pace of the walk slowed right down because they were hot and tired and um, all they wanted to do, we'd pull up at camp and all they'd wanted to do is sit around in the shade. At this point of time, it had sort of reached September out in the desert and all of a sudden got very hot too and uh, the camels still had their winter coat on mm. and, yeah, they were really struggling and we were hunkering down in the shade for the portion of time where they should have been out grazing. So then they were losing weight, you know, because of that as well. And you were get, um, coming into so yeah. the, the hotter part of the year anyway by then, weren't you? Mm, yes, yeah, we were. And it, and it's it, it just it's like it changes overnight. It went it literally went from winter to summer um, in a day, and then you know, and then we started to get horrendous dust storms and um, and uh, yeah, hot, hot, dry winds. Um, yeah, and it was and it was actually luckily around about that time, which is which was when I started when Oak Valley um, community popped by and, um, and so they were, 
they were such, yeah, they came to my rescue um, with all the water drops at that point. Yeah. And so you but, were, uh, so I guess you were artificially, you were feeding them from uh, drums of water that were being brought in. Is that right? Yes. We, we did struggle with water actually not far into the beginning of the trip because there's a, quite a lot of stations on the coast of WA that um, were previous sheep stations and then they've either been abandoned or they've been created as nature reserves. And so on the maps that I was looking at, there were so many bore points and I thought, oh, great, there's tons of places to, to water my camels. Um, mm. But no, they're all old um, sheep watering points and from back in the days when they ran sheep there and now they don't any longer. So most of those bore points were actually shut down. So um, so we had to get a delivery of water uh, about a month in which um, my friend Greg, who had helped me me drive the camels over in the truck, he, he came out um, with a big water tanker and, and delivered some water out for me and the camels. But I always, I never, ever relied on natural water. Um, it, it's just just too hard um, and you'll get yourself into trouble. Um, right. And, and so does that I mean always... that you have, to carry, you have to carry water actually on the camels? that you're carrying your yes. own water a lot of the time? Yes, I do, yeah. So I carry water for me and also for the camels, um, yeah. So I'll sort of water them at, at uh, one, you know, cattle trough um, and then I might walk for two weeks um, and I'll maybe give them give them a drink a week in from the jerry cans that they're travelling along with them on their backs. Um, and a then... lot to th- there's a lot to think of, a lot of, a lot to consider, and your camel and the welfare of your camels is obviously um, paramount on something um, like this. Mm, yeah. I remember doing definitely kilometres walking, just constantly doing water calculations in my head, trying to think, you know, okay, we're carrying this amount of, you know, we're carrying a uh, hundred litres of water now. And, uh, you know, if I give Macaulay 20 litres and Charlie this many litres and then how many litres we'll have that, you know, at the end of that and then how many more Ks we have to walk, it sort of almost became a bit of an obsession. Mm. Um, but, yeah, you, you just can't help it. It's It's so important out there. It sounds like at least, however, by doing that, you're living in the moment then. You're living every day uh, reacting to things that are happening around you and what you're doing rather than sitting there worrying about other things maybe that we all do when we're not out doing uh, epic treks like this. So tell us about how it did feel. Tell us something about the feel of what it's like to be out in those desert areas, just just the silence or was it silent you know, tell us, most of us never really get to experience remoteness in that way, a long way from anybody and anything. And tell us some of the wonderful things about that. Yeah, it's very special. It's very special watching watching the landscape change. Um, I think as well, you really get to see the subtle, the subtle differences in landscape. I think a lot of people kind of can you know, they think, oh, there's nothing out there in the outback. You know, it's 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 just a whole lot of whole lot of nothingness, um, and it's and it's so not true. It's um, there's a there's a lot to see out there, and and because you are, you know, you for the camels, you're looking at at what they're eating. Um, you're thinking about you know water points too. Uh, you might spend an entire day. Yeah, looking at the looking at the little footprints in the sand of of other animals that have been through here. So, I think the really special thing for me too is is you start to 
to feel connected with the landscape that you're walking through. Um, you're not whizzing by in a car, you know, in a little bubble basically with, you know, shielded from, from the elements. You, you become a part of it. Um, you, you know exactly what the moon is doing, you know, when it's rising, you know how full it is because it all is, is valuable information for what you're doing in terms of how much light you'll have that evening. Um, you, you know, you, you're looking very much at, at the plants and how the plants are changing and what that means in terms of, you know, maybe how high elevation you are or, or whether you're down sort of at, at um, salt, uh, salt lake level. Um, yeah, you're looking at the other animals that are around and which way the birds are travelling and wondering, you know, where they're drinking from and what water might be out there. And, um, and to feel... Yeah, so so it yeah, it's a very special feeling having that having that connection with the landscape, and also just knowing, yeah, knowing that that you're, it's, I think you know the world is just so populated these days too. So we're very lucky in Australia to be able to go places and to still be able to have these feelings. And I think that was one of the biggest things that appealed to me was to be able to see some of these parts of the country that. That, um, that not many other people have seen before and to be able to have that special sense of, of, of feeling like nature is king and um, or king or queen and, uh, you know, and we're just, we're just a speck moving through, moving through the environment. Yeah, and so tell us, um, did you meet uh, people? Did you, did you, you know, any, did you call into stations? Did you, you know, how many people did you meet and, and what were they all doing out there in the desert themselves? Yeah, well, I loved that too. I met some amazing people on the way. Um, uh, station owners were absolutely fantastic. I didn't have a single station that said, no, you can't walk through here. They were all above and beyond helpful. Um, and not just station owners, you know, there was quite a lot of stations I passed through that, you know, it was... Um, Maybe the owner wasn't there because they owned several stations or they lived, you know, somewhere else, but they, uh, you know, it was a, a caretaker just on the property. But everyone, everyone welcomed me and everyone, you know, cooked for me, helped me out, fed my camels. Um, I was, uh, I, I met a guy called Craig um, who was at uh, Namby Station. He was right right before I headed off into, into the desert and um, I was only going to stop there a night, actually. And I just, it, it happened to be one of those instances of, of meeting the right person at the right time. And, and it was when I was about to head off onto the Amberdell and I was feeling very nervous about no one else being out there. I was feeling nervous about there being wild camels. And, and, um, and Craig, actually, he was ex-army and um, he showed me everything to do with my guns. Uh, he sort of properly taught me how to shoot. He uh, re-welded new equipment for me to kind of make all the weights lighter on my camel's backs. He rearranged all my pack gear. Um, and then he spent about uh, uh, several days afterwards actually driving out to where I was camping uh, and delivering my camel's hay and delivering me food just because he knew how tough it was going to be for me when I, when, when I entered those remote stretches on my own. So he just really gave me this sort of little boost of support and help before I, before I hit, um, yeah, the really remote areas. So, so fantastic people like that I met that were just, I just, you know, it, it brings me to tears just how, and just is so humbling how, how helpful everyone has been. Um, 
And yeah, and then out in the desert too, yeah, like I said, you know, Oak Valley was incredibly helpful. Um, you know, the little roadhouse, Il Kulka, uh, out there, they they helped me out. And it, it's amazing sort of the the logistics in the outback that's you know, nothing nothing is beyond people. People will drive way out of their distances to, you know, distance to to help you. Um, and there's always a way. There's the, like where there's a will, there's a way, you know. I had to I had to get food boxes, uh, my food supplies delivered to sort of halfway along the Amberdell track out in the desert. And um, uh, so the guy who does the fuel run out there from from Laverton, which is just on the edge of the desert in WA, he dropped the food boxes out there. They put the food boxes in storage. So, so yeah, there's just so many times that, that people have helped me. Fantastic. And so as the uh, temperature started to creep up um, early, sort of late, uh, 2020 you were coming sort of to almost like the halfway point of your trek across the continent and at that stage you decided to take a break and to rest the camels during the hottest part of the year so that brought you to Cuba PD so tell us about the decision making around doing that uh, and, and what happened next well, that really related actually to what I was saying before and, and how hard it was with feeding the camels um, and, and what a bad season most of Western Australia had. So, so I didn't anticipate, I guess, how much weight they were going to lose. And, um, and because of that, how much slower we were going because I was trying to feed them more so we were sort of not covering as many Ks a day. And I remember just, you know, we started to sort of fall behind this schedule that I had created for us. And, and I remember just thinking there's no way, there's no way that we're going to get through the the hottest, you know, most arid parts of Australia in the one, the one year. Um, and so, yeah, it was, pro- it was probably about actually three months in that I, I sort of thought, mm, yeah, I think we're going to have to make a call and, um, split this trip into two years and you know I chatted to a few other camel people out there about it and and yeah and at the end of the day I just felt like I needed to put my camels first and um and really rest them over the summer and uh, give them time to to beef up and and put on condition for the for the second leg of the journey I remember being absolutely devastated at first because you know you I think you can get through those tough times by you know, by having, by knowing the end, the end date or the end goal and, and knowing, you know, you, I had put aside in my head, I thought it's going to take me, I think I thought sort of nine or 10 months. And that was, that was it. That was what I had in my head, what I envisioned. And, and then all of a sudden it became, went from that to sort of two years. And it was like, it just became absolutely overwhelming. Mm-hmm. But out of that, actually it's, you know, it, it's been the best decision that I've ever made. It's uh, my camels. Yeah. It gave my camels time to, to have a break and they're looking fat and healthy and happy. And, um, and, and also gave me time to sort of restock and, and to, to reflect and, and, um, look back on it, you know, positively. I think if I you know, kept pushing myself and the camels, we all would have been coming in pretty, pretty miserable. So, yeah. And so what you did is you took the camels, uh, into the Flinders Ranges um, and let them, really let them go. Um, and over a number of months, and you went back to Brisbane yourself. Now you're back down in the Flinders Ranges now and you've mustered 
your camels. You found them again. And as you just said, they're uh, looking fit, fat and healthy and ready to start again. So where to from here? Um, what, what, what will you do next? And tell us a little bit about how different the second half of this adventure is going to be as you come down through uh, New South Wales to your finishing point in Byron Bay. Yeah, so different, I think. I think so. Uh, yeah, basically, we, um, yeah, we, we arrived in Cooper Pedy, trucked the camels um, down here to the Flinders. And um, just uh, just the last couple of weeks, we've, we've had to go out and, and find them again, because they were released onto um, Beltana Station, which is about 900 square kilometres. So a, a huge expanse. Um, and um, which was lovely, lovely to see because my camels, you know, had come from the wild and they'd had about, you know, a year training and, you know, six months walking and stuff. So it was it was such an amazing feeling to, to be able to take halters and ropes and everything off them and just go sort of be free again. Um, and, uh, no, they've had the best time. And, and so now I have just just found them, which was a week long ordeal actually and and involved a couple of light aircraft having to go up and and track them down because we just literally couldn't find a single track out there they had gone walk about and were hiding in the bush and um and now i have to sort of get them a little bit a little bit fit and ready to go and then we will head back up uh on the truck to our finishing spot which was mount Clarence station in cooper Pedy, and um and we set off in about a month's time heading towards Byron and that's going to, that route's going to take us through, we're sort of going to go through, we're going to go through William Creek along the Udnadatta track. Um, we're going to sort of head just on the northern side of Maori, hit Cameron Corner. Then we're going to track mainly along the Queensland, New South Wales border um, to Byron Bay. And um yeah, I'm. I really think it's going to be a totally different second half. Uh, one of the biggest things is that we still have a bit of remote country to to travel. Uh, you know, the first couple of months. Um, you know, obviously around yeah, Udnadatta Track and uh, crossing over the Birdsville Track and through the Streslecky Desert. That's that's all pretty remote still. Um, but yeah, as we get closer to the East coast, we're going to start to run into civilization, which um, which it's funny now that I have done the desert stretches. I sort of think. Oh, that was easy. Like, <laughs> you know, now I'm more more terrified about going into civilization. Um, you know, not not because I'm scared of other humans, but I'm more. My camels have never experienced anything like that. They came from they came from the deserts. They've been in the deserts most of their life, um, and they've never been around large towns or cars or um, you know lots of buildings and people. And will, will you actually be walking along some? major highways at some stage yeah well this is what I've realized and, and when I went home for the summer actually it gave me the opportunity to, to do a bit of a recce driving around Byron and um and towards Stanthorpe because one of my biggest worries was was getting through the Great Dividing Range finding finding a way to get through that really mountainous area um off off the highway <laughs> so we were mm-hmm. we were looking at basically yeah, one of the main passes through there is the Bruxner Highway, which is obviously not ideal with a with a train of five camels. So, so we, uh, I, you know, contacted lots of private property owners, and we, I think, we found our way through the the range. But um, as we head towards sort of Casino and Lismore, we're definitely 
going to be, and maybe even before then, we're, we're going to be on the bitumen, definitely. Right. You're um, going to be and... uh, quite the centre of attention, I feel, when, that, <laughs> yes. when those days yes, come. unfortunately. I know. Here, here <laughs> I'm thinking, hopefully we'll just sneak in the back way to the bar and no one will notice. <laughs> I don't think so. Somehow, Sophie, I don't think that is the way it's going to be. No. Well, look, I, we wish you all the best for the second half of your incredible journey uh, across Australia and um you know we look forward to catching up with you and uh just staying in touch along the way um and then talking to you when it's all done and dusted and and, and hearing you know what what different challenges you faced and how you overcame them uh, but it is a magnificent um and an epic idea to walk across the country with camels and you know probably get to understand what can all the differences so many of us never really get to go to those places that you know I hope that you inspire other Australians to get out not necessarily walking with camels but just to get out and explore Australia, <laughs> especially you know these days when we can't go overseas yes beautiful country that we don't really uh, get around very much and, and 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 it is lovely to hear how uh, wonderfully you describe those desert areas as just being actually so full of life Mm, especially at the moment, you know, there's been a lot of great rain around Australia and, and the deserts are flourishing and, you know, there's wildflowers out there and, and greenery and, yeah, and, and a ton of life. So it's, yeah, it's a great time to explore. Well, it's been great talking to you and thank you for your time and I know that you're busy up there uh, planning the next stage. So we've really appreciated having the opportunity to talk to you this morning, Sophie. Thank you, Chrissy. Lovely to chat. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com. Or find us on Instagram at Australian Geographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia, you'll find special offers for our listeners, including 10% of all products purchased in our e-store. So don't wait and go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from, so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Mm-hmm.